You are listening to First Church Charlotte. All right, so I am teaching here for a little while on the subject of what I am calling Matthew's story. Matthew's story. And I am going to direct your attention uh, to this various passage in this book. We won't stand and read together. We'll just dive right into this. And I want to, uh, first of all, direct you to the lineage that St. Matthew gave to us in the first chapter of his book. Uh, If you flip, if you have your Bible with you and you want to flip over to the first first chapter of Matthew, uh, you will see uh, how uh, he begins telling this this story of of the the book. And there's this long genealogy that begins uh, here in in the book. And if you started reading the Bible at a young age, I, I started with daily words at a fairly young age. I wasn't always consistent with it, um, but I I tried repeatedly. And I think I was in my my later teens before I actually read the Bible through. Um, but I, I would I remember trying and trying and and people would say if you haven't read the whole Bible start with the New Testament very good advice you can read the the New Testament in three or four hours it's it's not that big of a commitment uh, as far as time but it takes you a good bit longer to read the Old Testament but you should try for that too. Uh, <laughs> Starting in Matthew, I know ever, as a child, I was, I'm going to read. I'm going to read the New Testament, and then you start on Matthew chapter number one. Isaac, Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, and Judah begot Perez and Jerah by Tamar, and Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Abinadab, and Abinadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. You get the idea. I mean, that first chapter is like a speed bump just to remind you that you didn't accidentally decide to do this. You made up your mind uh, to read the New Testament. So real quick, let me just make an appeal to all of you. If you haven't read the New Testament, um, start. Read the New Testament. Uh, if you haven't read any anything in a systematic manner, I would recommend starting with the Gospel of John. Read that. That is very much of uh, a quick, easy uh, story that I think is beautifully, beautiful. it's a gospel, a beautifully told uh, gospel. Uh, but I tell you this because hidden in this genealogy is a rather profound understanding about who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And there is going to be a story beneath the surface. Now, uh, scripturally, uh, you'll find the Bible loves to do this. The Bible, every chapter in the Bible comes in layers. If you want to just blast through it in a hurry and read fast, you'll get it at a surface layer. Now, if you want to go a little deeper, um, I I, I get this question a lot, interestingly, uh, this question of how how I read the Bible. In fact, I did a Bible study uh, a few months back on how I read the Bible. Um, One of the things you can do is rather than just blasting through it, get yourself a Bible's handbook. There's several of them. There's Smith's, there's Haley's, um, there's three or four more of these Bible handbooks. Um, And before you read the book, read read what the, the handbook has to say, the summation of the book. It'll give you a top-down set of themes, and then when you read it, you won't just be in the weeds of details. That's another way to read the book. Um, So uh, here, something happens in the, the gospel of Matthew. It is a story beneath 
the story. There is wisdom beneath the surface. And in the story of Matthew is the whole story written large. It's told small in the life of Matthew. And Matthew is going to do something very interesting in his book that would go against um, what the order of history typically was. Histories and genealogies of notable men, notable characters, were written by paid historians. I want to say that again because I want you to grasp this. Um, Almost all of the genealogies that are given to us of ancient characters are the work of paid historians who were hired by the character to make an impressive genealogy for them. That's why if you read some of the genealogies that came from Rome per se, you'll find a genealogy that takes them all the way back to Remus and Romulus. And then the wolves that raised them. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's a paid fabrication. And the goal of the genealogy is to make the person in the story look good. That's why so many ancient genealogies are linked to mythic figures. How would they know if Zeus begot them? Uh, But so many of these ancient genealogies are the work of paid historians who have one job, and that is to make the character, the individual, the politician, uh, the leader, the king, the emperor, who is paying them Their job is to make that individual look good by linking them repeatedly to the great notable people of history. Now Matthew comes along and Matthew does not seem to make any effort to make Jesus look good. There's a couple things that has to happen theologically in the lineage of Jesus Christ and both the lineages, whether they go through the Mary, through Mary's side or whether they go through Joseph's side, uh, both of them complete this uh, with enough accuracy to have it written during the time where there were living witnesses. That is very, very important. These books were written while there were still living witnesses. So it's tough to just make fabrications up when there are living witnesses alive. And so both of them were written with living witnesses and before the destruction of the temple. So what records they would have had would have been accessible to anyone uh, who wanted to contest this. Both of them connect Jesus to King David This is necessary to see the fulfillment of the covenant God made with David. I will build again the house of David. You sought to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. You want to build a house of wood. I'm going to build you a house of grace and mercy peace with God. And this is the first theological necessity, you might say, to see the fulfillment in Jesus Christ of the covenant given with David. Uh, When you read the genealogies, you need to understand these two necessary theological fulfillments that happen in these genealogies. The other is to link him to Abraham, who receives the covenant. This is is Bible study. I know this is a little bit uh, deeper than some of us would normally go, but it's my favorite service, and I get to nerd out. 
But uh, real quick, I'll give you a break and tell you a joke. So my wife told me a blonde joke that I'm going to share with you. Uh, two blondes decided to cut down a Christmas tree. They wanted the perfect Christmas tree. It was time they decided, and a storm came through and covered the, the land with snow. And uh, so these two blondes had to, to, to put on their boots and put on their heavy coats and get their saws and their axes. And they went out into the wilderness, and they started searching for the perfect Christmas tree in the first hour passed, the second hour passed, third hour passed, fourth hour passed. All day long they're searching. Finally the sun is setting. One of the blondes throws down her axe and she says, this is enough. We have, we've just got to pick a Christmas tree whether it's decorated or not. <laughs> That's funny. I don't care what y'all say. So back to the serious subject now that I've lifted you off of the, de the, the deep things. Jesus necessarily to fulfill theological prophecy, uh, or I should say to fulfill prophecy from which theology will be wrought, understanding will be communicated in the epistles, he has to be the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham and the fulfillment of the promises to David. I am so glad to tell you today, Jesus fulfills all the prophecies of the Old Testament beyond any fabrication anyone could make over a hundred and fifty uh, prophecies if I remember correctly fulfilled in Jesus Christ so you can know that he is not just a history figure he is God manifests in the flesh who can wash your sins away and change your life. We're a Jesus church around here, and I'm not tired of celebrating his victory. And so here's the interesting thing. Remember, histories and genealogies, particularly if they go back to really ancient times, they are by paid historians, and the goal of them is to make the object of the history make as, to look as good as possible. Matthew seemingly breaks all of these rules. First of all, he's not paid. Jesus is only possession worthy, the, the, the clothes that was taken from him at his crucifixion. There was no payment to be given. That's the first oddity. The second Second oddity is that Matthew seems to make almost no attempt to make Jesus look good. He commits one of the great faux pas of genealogies, and that is to put people of shame in the story of a man of honor. This is a genealogical faux pas. Matthew puts in the story people of shame. The first one is in verse number three. Uh, this is Tamar. She is uh, really... Uh, the type of character you don't want in a genealogy that looks good. Uh, she had a shameful story and it gets worse because you could make an argument that Tamar, although it's an ugly story, she, she may have been innocent of everything that happened. Uh, uh, when you get to Rahab, it's really hard to make Rahab look good in verse number five. Rahab is admittedly by even the people who like her, even the people who want to make her look good, they admit that she was a prostitute. Hard to make that look good. And they, uh, it's not the kind of person you put in the genealogy. And, and, and Matthew, you know, why didn't he just skip them? He didn't have to mention them. He could have maybe mentioned the man's side and skipped the woman's side. Why? I want you to see. Not every generation does he put the man or the woman in the story. I want you to see this. He could have just tracked the men. But he intentionally puts... 
Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and that most notable person famous for taking public baths, Bathsheba, pardon the pun, in the story, he could have, he didn't have to name the woman. Why would he intentionally tell the story of shame in the lineage of Jesus Christ? Now, more than just shameful sin, there is also uh, the problem of purity. This is a big deal in some of these Jewish circles. Um, These uh, women like Ruth, I didn't mention Ruth. She's not even uh, of the house of Israel. She's a Moabitess. And once you put her in the story, and Rahab is not of the children of Israel, she's a Moabitess. Um, or Rahab wasn't a Moabitess. Ruth was a Moabitess. But um, you get the idea. Once you have the taint of uh, mixed blood, it becomes something your critics use against you in a, pre- uh, a prejudiced age. and an age filled with hatred. If you're wanting to make Jesus look good, when you get to these people, you just skip from the woman's side and just name the man who was involved. And they were not near as notorious. They were just as much sinners, you know, it, you know the, as anyone else. But, um, you know, history was kind to them. And... Uh, No one really knew, but these are characters of shame. And Matthew makes a point to put the shameful side of the story in the story. It's pretty dramatic. In fact, I will explain it further. Matthew starts the story with shameful characters. He could have started telling about the miracles first so they would keep reading. Obviously, Matthew knows very little about marketing. He did not go to the local community college and take a course on marketing. You don't start with the bad stuff. All right, here we have some uh, hair products that we want to advertise for you. The bad news is all your hair will fall out. But while it lasts, it will have a glorious shine. You don't put the bad stuff first. What you do is you, you oversell the good stuff. Your hair will shine like the veritable face of Moses descending from the mountaintop. And at the bottom it says, Sometimes I've been noticed. And your hair will fall out. That's how you do that. Matthew's breaking all the rules of marketing. And he doesn't seem to care. There's a story here. There's a story beneath the story. Um, Matthew is making a point, I believe, that I think is beautiful. And it sits at the very beginning of the New Testament. Um, Sinners are not the part of the story to be ignored. Sinners become the point of the story. For God so loved the world. And that's some fine Bible study teaching. Just take your time, brother. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. God loves sinners. God is not mad at you. He's heartbroken for you. God is not looking to pound you. He is heartbroken for you. He doesn't view you as a slave who has escaped and must be tracked and punished so others will fear. He views you as a son, a daughter. And he loves you like a son and a daughter. Sinners aren't an accident of the story. Sinners become the point of why God descended to pay a debt we could not pay. This is the foundation of a better covenant. This is the foundation of a more beautiful story. As 
believers, we need to make sure that the story we tell to the world is a beautiful story because we have been given the most beautiful story that the world has ever heard. Now, we can tell it harshly, but we'll miss the beauty of it. We can tell it ugly. Uh, I've seen that done. But then we miss the, the, the beauty of it. There is beauty in the fact that sinners become the point of the story, not an accident to the story. Sin becomes the issue that motivated God to redeem the world. And Jesus' story doesn't make sense if you take the ugly parts out. Let me say it this way. Your testimony doesn't make sense as long as you're busy trying to make yourself look good. Your redemption is most beautiful when people know the truth about where God has brought you. And so for Matthew, this is his story. His story. Uh, there's a, a great book written by one of the, the best apologists of our, our time, and that is the, uh, the writer Timothy Keller. He wrote a book entitled uh, The Prodigal God, and I want to give you a quote from that book. Mercy and forgiveness must be free and unmerited to the wrongdoer. If the wrongdoer has to do something to merit it, then it isn't mercy. It's something else. But mercy must be unmerited because if you have to do something to qualify yourself for it, then it isn't mercy. It, it is uh, something else. Um, I want to read for you this moment where Matthew is called. And I'm going to have some fun. I'm going to read this uh, in the message translation. Um, I enjoy the message translation because of the fact that it is intentionally written. Um, if you were to read the Greek in a non-formal manner or read the Hebrew in a non-formal manner. It is written, the, the, the translator is trying to capture the informality of it. Uh, the, the, the translator was a scholar who spent most of his life working in translation uh, for sacred uh, type writings. And uh, he, 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 he says, and if you read the story of the, and let me just be clear, um, I don't try to do theology with the message translation. I use it to hear the words fresh and new. Um, but he said if you, if you speak Greek or Hebrew and you read the original texts, they have a, 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 an informal feel that once you translate it, it no longer, it loses it. It loses this informal feel once it's translated into English. And we know this, you know. Um, I heard one pastor make the joke and say, you know, for years we thought that one who prophesied meant you spoke King James. <laughs> It's like, it's like as soon as you're going to go a word for the Lord, it's like, well, let's all gather hand. Behold, thus saith the word of the Lord. You start speaking King James. Um, and that's his point. Once you translate it, it gets this formality that, 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 that it really isn't there in the Greek. And so I'm going to read Matthew 9, and I'm going to read it uh, in the message translation. I want you just to listen. I don't know if they have that translation. If they want to put it up, that's fine. But I don't know if they have that on that computer. Back in the boat. I love the story feel. Back in the boat. Meanwhile, back in the boat, Jesus and the disciples recrossed the sea to Jesus' hometown. How are we doing? Nice. Score one for the media team. They were hardly out of the boat when some men carried a paraplegic on a stretcher and set him down in front of them. Jesus, impressed by their bold belief, 
said to the paraplegic, cheer up, son, I forgive your sins. Some religious scholars whisper, why, that's blasphemy. It's funner if I do the voices, right? Jesus knew what they were thinking and said, why this gossipy whispering? Oh, how this phrase blesses me. My word for the next year is going to be gossipy whispering. <laughs> what is this gossipy whispering? Which do you think is simpler to, to say, I forgive your sins or get up and walk? Well, just so it's clear that I am the son of man and authorized to do either or both. At this, he turned to the paraplegic and said, get up, take your bed, and go home. The man did it. The crowd was awestruck, amazed, and pleased that God had authorized Jesus to work among them this way. I want to point out, this is why people who are not right with God receive miracles. Because it, even the miraculous is a sign of God's grace and mercy. Even God's blessing is a sign of his grace and mercy. Here's a man, and he says, you're forgiven. And they say, oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. And he says, well, how about this? Take up your bed and walk. Even the miraculous is a sign of God's forgiveness and God's mercy in your life. I want to point out to you that grace is more powerful than we ever could imagine it to be. The man does not even ask for repentance, but this shows you the heart of God. It is trying to gush out of him his love for his creation, for his people, for a broken soul. Don't rush past the messes in your life. We all know people, their life is a mess. Don't rush past them. Imagine God is bursting with love to do something in their life. God is just looking for an opportunity to give them a miracle as a sign of his heart, as a sign of his mercy. That's why we as believers, we ought to be the first ones to pray. We ought to be the first ones to speak faith. We ought to be the first ones to say, God could heal you. Let's just pray right now. Don't try to be dramatic unless that's your personality. Then be very dramatic. But be true to yourself. If you, honest and authentic to yourself, were to pray for someone, what would that sound like? That's exactly what you should do. Don't try to be me. You do you, but speak and pray and watch as the heart of God bursts out to show his love and mercy. Take up your head and walk. Now, uh, People are all struck, amazed. Passing along, Jesus, okay, I want to show you, Jesus does a work, but he does it in the face of confrontation. There is a people there who are criticizing him. Uh, they don't like what he's doing, and they accuse him of the most dangerous accusation in this time, which is blasphemy. Blasphemy will get you stoned before almost anything else in this particular era. Blasphemy will get you stoned. Now, the Jews were not allowed to crucify. That was regarded as a capital punishment reserved to Roman Empire, so they used stones. They had a historical precedent of that. This is a stoning accusation. And Jesus, he does this work, demonstrates his power, and turns and comes face to face with a tax collector. His name was Matthew. Jesus said to him, come along with me. Matthew stood up and followed him. Later, Later, when Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house with his close followers, a lot, somebody say a lot. That was pitiful. Say a lot. Say a lot like you're talking about a lot. Thank you. I love you too. A lot of disreputable characters came and joined them. Okay, a lot of disreputable characters came and joined them. They snuck one kind of bad guy in the side door. No, a lot of 
notorious people came and joined them. A lot of Matthew's a tax collector and he's the one writing. A lot of dirty lowdowns showed up. And I'm a dirty lowdown and it takes one to know one. A lot of disreputable characters came and joined them. And so Jesus, um, he preached on righteousness and he ran them off. Um, Anyway, moving along. When the Pharisees saw him, and that I, was, I was being facetious, he's going to minister to people where they are, not where he wants them to be. He's going to, he's going to meet them right where they are and minister to them right where they are and receive them, notice, with hospitality right where they are. This is what drives the Pharisees nuts. He is receiving them with hospitality, known sinners. No one accuses Jesus. Even his enemies don't accuse of him of approving of their lives. Even his enemies don't accuse him of that. They know what he says. They hear him teach. No one accuses him of approving. Their accusation is that he shows hospitality yeah. to them. And so, there's this big bunch of disreputable characters. Pharisees see him keeping this kind of company. I love this. They had a fit and lit into Jesus' followers. Now, how can you not like that translation of the Bible? They had a fit and lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? That's some fine translation right there. I mean, if that doesn't bless you, really, you need to take an aspirin and go to bed. Um, That is, what kind of example from your teacher? He is cozy with crooks and riffraff. If you roll the R in a Spanish style, it makes it cooler, right? Riffraff. Jesus overhears, shoots back. He shot back. Who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? Go figure out what this scripture means. I'm after mercy and not religion. I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. That's some good stuff right there. That just, I I mean, I'm just saying that's some fine Thanksgiving dinner right there. So I I want you to now go back to uh, Matthew. Matthew's writing this gospel. How am I doing on time? Oh, I'm rocking. I'm doing good. Um, So he goes back and he is called. He knows his status. He is a figure of shame. Publicans and um, tax collectors, um, it's a double shame. It's not just that they take advantage, most of them, of their status to, to take Uh, the wealth of the people. It's that they have sold out to the Roman Empire. It is a double, a double uh, shame upon them. But Jesus, Jesus calls him right after he's been accused um, by the Pharisees of blasphemy. It's almost as though he wants to prove a point. It's almost as though he's hunting trouble. And right after They say, who do you think you are to forgive sin? That he goes and has dinner with a bunch of sinners. It's almost as though, have you ever done something because someone was making you crazy? You normally wouldn't have done it. But they were just on your nerves and it just pushed you over the edge. You know, with families, a lot of times we form each other. Um, If you have one sibling who is this way, um, that other sibling will be formed in opposition to them. Why? Because there's opposite, equal reactions usually to these kind of things. Um, and uh, it's almost as though Jesus is wanting to prove a point and it's almost as though Matthew got the point and got it so clearly that he 
founded and started and set the keynote, the introduction of his gospel by making this point again. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. He is making this point while he sits there. His first personal witness of Jesus is not the genealogy. His first personal witness of Jesus is right here in Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus is making a point to all the uh, Pharisees and other critics. And that is he has come to reach out to sinners. He has a heart for lost things. Uh, there, is, <clears throat> there is a temptation with all within every church uh, to focus on ministry rather than mission. Now, I'm using these words in a very specific way. And words are tools. And so um, I, I don't want to have an argument over the words. I want to tell you how I'm using them. A ministry is often about... Uh, saved things. Ministry is about encouraging people, uh, equipping people. Ministry is about making space for people. It's about taking care. It's the care and keeping of saved things. Mission is about the intentional search for lost things. You understand what I'm saying? And uh, there, is a, there is a tendency within the Christian life uh, for us to turn more and more toward ministry. Why? Because there's no rejection. We pray for people who are already saved. We speak encouragement to people who are already coming to church. We show affection to people whose kids are raised in a manner that we approve of and we allow our kids to spend time with them because their kids uh, are a certain level of approval. You get the idea. Our lives, if we're not careful, is always turning us toward ministry, the care and keeping of saved things. Now, this I can show to you, not just, um, not just in, in, in the history of the house of Israel, not just in uh, the, uh, my personal experience of pastoring and, and working with churches. Uh, I can also show it to you in, 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 in church statistics done by sociologists. You know, um, in less than 2% of Christians invite anybody to come to church with them a year. Less than 2%. Of Christians now, I think our average is, is higher than that, but it's probably not as high as it should be or could be. Um, but less than two 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 percent of Christians uh, invite anyone to come to church with them in any one given year. I think we ought to we ought to uh, uh, if you're a strong believer, if you're a strong believer, you ought to raise your goals, and your goal is to invite someone to come to church every week. Not once a year or less than once a year. That means 98% of Christians don't invite anyone to come to church ever. <clears throat> it's actually uh, worse than that. Uh, I think 57% of millennials uh, think it's wrong to share your faith with anyone. Because you're saying your truth matters more than theirs. These are, these are crazy numbers, but this is the world <clears throat> that we live in. Now, if you are just kind of have ministry focus and you stay with pretty much saved people and you embrace saved people and you minister, equip, encourage, etc., etc., saved people, these numbers seem alien to you. But if you actually are involved in trying to connect with people, if you're, if you're asking questions, if you're talking to people and not just telling them what to do, but listening to them. If you're going to win souls, you have to be wise. You have to practice. This is another Bible study for another time. But you have to, you have to tell a beautiful story. I'm going to teach this. Uh, secondly, you have to practice radical hospitality. Um, but we'll talk about all that later. So um, the, the point I'm trying to make is that uh, so many people are 
completely uh, content with ministry. We just kind of minister and encourage to save people. But Jesus gives us mission. And this is the tension between uh, the Pharisees and Jesus. It's th- they, they, the problem is not that they think Jesus wants people to act like sinners. Um, they, 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 not even they, they accuse him of that. They say you shouldn't even be seen with sinners like that. And this is the crux of this is the crux of the matter. Who is the gospel for? Who is the gospel for? Who is the ministry of Jesus Christ for? And this focus upon the lowly, the broken, the shameful, it rings out of every step that Jesus walks through the land of Galilee, through the land of Judah, his heart for sinners. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. I have not, I, I, for I am, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God is in the business of celebrating mercy. He is in the business of loving lost things. And if you want to understand the, 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 the ministry of Jesus Christ, you have to understand that it is a missional ministry. And so as a church, we have to find a way. I want to challenge all of you mature, strong believers to, to in some way find a way to touch people in your life who are far from God who are broken in many ways, who are distant. I want you as an act of demonstration of God's love. I want to do this myself. I want us to be missional and reach out to the broken, the lowly. Can I have a big amen? I want to say this. It doesn't matter if they all become church members. You still pleased God by demonstrating mercy. You still were a representative of God by showing hospitality to them. Now, the exception is if you are weak in your Christianity and you, they are influencing you more than you're influencing them. Do not deceive yourself. If they're influencing you more than you're influencing them, you need to, you need to pop a parachute. You need to get, because you're going to end up where they are if they are stronger than you. Uh, there is a risk of us being just silly about who's influencing who. If you're weak in your faith, you need to find somebody strong and have them help you learn how to walk right. Can I have a big amen from the quiet church? All right. Thank you very much. Mercy is beautiful. There's this great quote, and I, I haven't done this in a long time, but I'm a, um, I, I love literature. Uh, I probably got that from my dad. My dad taught English literature um, uh, in, in high school. And so I want, to, I, I want to just real quick give you this quote uh, from uh, Shakespeare. Uh, the quality... Uh, and, the, and I may kind of give you this ad lib a little bit because it's a little hard to follow. The quality of mercy is not strained. Um, it drops as a gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. Blessed, Shakespeare said. Why? Because it blesses him that gives and it blesses him that takes. The might, it is the mightiest thing in mighty the mightiest or in mighty people. It becomes the throne, the throned monarch who is better than his crown. Mercy shows this. His scepter shows the force of temporal power. And that temporal power, like 
life and death over people that that shows that that leads to awe in us and majesty in in them and and those kings sit on their thrones in dread and fear but above this mercy is greater than the scepter in that king's hand it is above the sceptered sway it is enthroned in the hearts of kings it is an attribute to god himself and earthly power doth then show likest gods earthly power is most like god's power when it is merciful when mercy seasons justice this is not just a religious idea this is very much bound in the human experience and when we receive mercy nothing makes us feel like we have been closely in some way uh touched by God and touched by power as it does when we receive mercy. And so Matthew gives us this genealogy filled with uh, uh, disreputable stories. Matthew gives us this, this, this genealogy filled with shameful uh, names. He could have skipped the shameful names. He didn't have to include them, but he started with them. This is one of the reasons why uh, you don't have to think. You, you, if anyone talks about how the Bible's a fabrication, um, if they just made it all up, number one, why did they put the bad things in the story? If, why not just make them look as good as possible? When they wrote it, he wasn't known by but, but a few handful of people. Uh, it, what, the explosion came later. The growth came later. You understand? Um, well, uh, that's, that's not, uh, that's not entire. How should I say this? There was explosion. The gospels were written. Yes. But I want you to see that if they wanted to make something fabrication, uh, it, it would have been much easier just to do what everybody else did and create this, this, this lineage where he looks uh, pristine and perfect, not the ugly placed alongside the beautiful. But this is the ministry of Jesus Christ. He has come for broken things. And let me just end with this. Uh, one of the great chapters on lost things is Luke chapter number 15. Three stories in Luke chapter 15. And I'm, a, I'm done. Musicians, you can come. Three, three stories in Luke 15. Um, and all of them have to do with lost things. The first one is the lost sheep. Um, the second one is the lost son. And if I remember correctly, the third one is the lost coin. Uh, Luke 15 is kind of like the archetype, the, the high point, the apex of law, understanding lost things. And each one of these stories teaches us something about God and his passion for lost things. Um, as, a, as, a, as, as, as believers, as Christians, uh, we, we have to be committed to the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to care about lost things people. We have to be motivated by lost people. Um, and I want to I point out something that just is astonishing to me. The first story is uh, the lost sheep. What does the good shepherd do if there's a lost sheep? He'll leave the 90 and 9 safe in the fold and go seek after one that is lost. So let me say it this way because this, this shocked me when I, I put this together. Uh, maybe, maybe it will maybe, maybe it'll hit you too. I don't know. Even with a 99% success rate, our God is seeking lost things. Think about that. Is there any business that wouldn't be happy with a 99% success rate? They would be thrilled. Is there any government program that wouldn't be happy with a 99% success rate? 99 is just about as good as it gets. God, the God we serve is so motivated by lost things, lost people, 
that even if his work has a 99% success rate, he is going to seek lost things. Now that, let me tell you who thinks that way. Not a government program. Not a business. That's how a parent thinks. That's how a parent thinks. Let's say you have four children. And you lose one of them. You don't head back to the car and say, hey, we got 75%. That's not bad. That's how businesses think. That's how governments think. That's not how parents think. When I drove off and left my son on the side of the road up in the mountains in the middle and late in the evening, and Ellery said, what about Bubba? (laughs) I didn't say, oh, well, we still have 50% of our kids. You know, 50% is not bad. It's better than I'm doing as a pastor. (laughs) 50% is not bad. (laughs) That's not how a parent thinks. A parent, my father, you watch it, little girl, I'll spank your mama. Um, So, um, that didn't come out right. Uh, Forgive me. Um, Getting a little too close to the truth there, sister. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, don't let us be so focused on saved people that we forget your heart is motivated by one lost person. Don't let us forget, Lord, that even if we had a 99% success rate, which we are so far from that, it's... Even with a 99% success rate, you would go seek the one that was lost. Let our church, I pray, when people come in and they're, they're troubled in their spirit, let them feel the, the, the embrace of this church. And when people come and they, they, they may have a past, let them know to their very bones that no one in this church is trying to find out the details of their past. It's none of our business where they, what they did, where they came from. We're just glad they're in the house. We're not worthy either, Lord, and we're just so glad they're here. Lord, let, this, let us as people not just kind of have a, guilt, a guilty response to uh, soul winning where, oh, we've got to do it. Let us feel your heart and let us be motivated by your heart that is so focused on the lost. That even if 99% were saved, you'd still have a heart for lost things. In Jesus' name I pray. How many of you would like to pray for somebody you know right now that's lost? You've prayed for them, but they're not where they need to be. Raise your hand all across the house. Let's just do this. We're going to ask. We're going to ask in faith believing right now. You have a name in your mind? You have a name in your mind? Somebody that's not where they need to be? Uh, I, some of you have children, family across the house right now. Lord Jesus, we're we're speaking the name right now before you of that lost person. Lord, we're with you in seeking them and we are joining our effort to your heart in embracing them, Lord Jesus. We're not trying to manipulate them. Lord, we want them to choose as an act of love. And so, Lord, would you so orchestrate their life where they would be exposed to your goodness. It's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. And, Lord, would you expose them to your goodness. 
Lord Jesus, in such a way that they would they would be drawn to you. I'm praying, Lord, for my family members who aren't saved. You know, you know their names, Lord. You know who I'm praying for right now. I pray, Lord Jesus, that they would see your goodness. They would see the beauty of the Lord. And they would have a softening in their heart toward the beauty of the Lord. And having seen your beauty, they would desire a relationship with you. And that doesn't have to be my relationship, Lord, but just something of the turning of their life to you. In Jesus' name we pray. And I say thank you for what you're working on our behalf. Let's praise them all across the house. We bless your name, Lord Jesus. We bless your name. We worship you. We glorify you. We magnify you today. Amen. 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 God bless you. I love you. Have a great week. Remember, ladies, prayer. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four stars. By doing so, you will help others find it and also bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times and church ministries, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us.